This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Canna, down the left field line, is gone! A leadoff homer for Mark Canna. Pitch to Donaldson. He is a high fly deep left field. Back goes De La Cruz. Bye bye baseball. Josh Donaldson, the bringer of rain, brings it here at American Family Field, and the Brewers have a two to one lead. Three balls, two strikes, two outs. Here he comes. And it's in there. A cold strike three. Backdoor cutter from Burns. Eight no hit inning. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, writer and researcher at MLB, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Thursday, September 14th, and we're going to go through the whole usual spiel, but shockingly for us, we have breaking news to talk about, which is not usually what we get to do on a podcast. Like 20 minutes before we uh, sat down to record here, Red Sox fired Heim Bloom, which I think is kind of shocking. So we are obligated to talk about this before we get into the rest. And the rest of it will be uh, the Braves are hitting at a historic level. Trey Turner is trying to be the world's most perfect stolen base artist. Milwaukee's rotation red hot at the right time. And hey, Max Scherzer's hurt again. A couple of guys need to know more about after that. Matt, uh, the Red Sox have fired Bloom, and they are pretty close to being in last place. They're going to play a doubleheader against the Yankees today. They were in last place last year. They were in last place in his first year, but they also went to the ALCS in his second year. It's been four years for a man who I think got hired at like the worst possible time. Like nobody could have known this, obviously, but he got the job in October of 2019. What happened? I don't know. Four months after that. That stinks. That's a bad beat. I'm both surprised they fired him because I didn't have great expectations that the team would be great. But also, I guess if I didn't think the team would be great, that doesn't say great things about the front office. And most, I guess I'm just surprised at the timing. Why now? Why not before the trade deadline? Why not after the season? The whole thing is surprising. Yeah, and it's, I mean, you you. it's also surprising in light of David Stearns reportedly taking a job two days ago, considering he was considered like the big free agent amongst president of baseball operations types that if you were like thought you were going to fire high and bloom you would have at least thought you'd want to at least not necessarily you were guaranteed to hire david stearns but you might have wanted to be in the conversation to hire david stearns speaking of the bloom firing specifically i'm kind of both shocked and not shocked at the same time um there actually has i mean there's been overall just a lot of discontent amongst red sox fans about the direction of the club the last couple of years and the rumors had started to pick up the last couple of days that this might happen. On the other hand, you keep hearing people saying, well, it seems like he was just running the team the way ownership wanted him to. And like, what, I mean, what did you expect? That said, like, it doesn't really feel like the Red Sox have had a clear direction. And maybe that's not Bloom's fault, but it just feels like they're kind of just been in this weird middle ground. I do think Bloom was put in a tough position when he was hired. And basically his first mandate was trade Mookie Betts, which obviously is, was was bad it was 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 a bad <laughs> direction to Can go we talk about that we talk about that for a yes. second for the rest of time his name will be attached to the guy who traded Mookie Betts 
and didn't get a great return. Although I'm going to argue that for a second. Nobody on this planet thinks that he walked in, got the job and said, you know what? I can't wait to do. I can't wait to get rid of Mookie Betts, right? Like those are decisions that happen at a, a higher level, I think, uh, especially when you're a brand new GM. And while the trade doesn't look good now, it was one year and it ended up being a partial year because of the COVID season of Mookie Betts. I don't think you were ever, there was no expectation you were going to get like a game changing prospect return. So even though he's the guy who's going to be, I traded Mookie Betts. I don't, I don't think it's fair to put that all on him. What I do think it's fair to put on him is um, they didn't have a shortstop this year. Did, didn't seem very interested in obtaining a shortstop this year. Like the defense is unwatchably bad. I don't know if that goes more to Alex Cora or more to Heim Bloom, but I think you're right that the, the direction of the whole franchise over the last couple of years just seemed, I don't know, inconsistent. It's not the Red Sox team. I don't want to say that we grew up with because it was a very different Red Sox team. But the one I remember from like college, right? For the last 20 years, like they're going to be one of the three best teams in baseball. And they've just been either very good or very poor and no in between. I don't know where you go from that. Even like in free agency, it's not like they haven't been willing to go after players, but it was like weird last year knowing that Devers and Bogarts were going to be free agents to go out and sign Trevor Story to play second base and then let Bogarts walk. And then they did sign. I think at that point they were like, we have to resign. Devers, and it's like the one guy they have resigned, and he's a very good player. But like looking back, it's like, well, he's not Mookie Betts. Like, if we we're gonna like, you kind of have to pick your battles of like, who am I gonna, who am I gonna make sure that I keep? So it's weird to think that that's where they landed. So it has been a strange few years in Boston. Of course, the younger version of me is sort of like Red Sox fans. Come on, you've won four World Series in the last like twenty years. Like, chill out. Like, you had it pretty good. You still won the ALCS two years ago. So it's not like it's been such a fallow period. It's been a weird period, but all things being equal, the Red Sox have had a pretty good run and Red Sox fans, you obviously want your team to be good, but you know, other fan bases, I should say, have a lot more to complain about. Yeah, I think that's right. And honestly, it's not just Red Sox, like the entire New England sporting landscape scape has been, uh, it's been pretty good. All right, let's move on to our, our original first topic was going to be, which is the Atlanta Braves and Ronald Acuna Jr., and when you look at what the Braves have done, they are probably going to set the all-time record for home runs. You start to wonder, like, hey, is this the deepest team we've ever seen? And we talked about their depth a couple weeks ago. And is this, like, a historically great season? And you don't want to get too deep into that in June or July or even August. But now it's September and the season's almost over and you can start thinking about these things. And the answer is yes. My favorite offensive stat to look at, you know, on a seasonal basis is weighted runs created plus. It's very similar to OPS plus. It sets 100 as the league average for that year, right? So the Braves this year have a 124 WRC plus. That means 24% better than the average park adjusted for that year. The best team of all time was the 1927 Yankees, but a 125. So the Braves are tied for like just ever so slightly behind the Yankees, tied with the 2019 Astros the 1931 Yankees and just ahead of the 1930 Yankees may have noticed that Babe Ruth was a very good hitter. The reason they're doing this, there's a number of reasons, but I like to point to the power. They are 20% above league average in slugging. That is the best any team has ever been, right? They are nearly 100 points ahead of the league average in slugging. And obviously all the focus is on Acuna, but it's not just him, you know, like they're going to have five guys at 30 home runs. Uh, Matt Olson, not going to get to 60, but he's going to be in the mid fifties. The Braves offense is so far ahead of everybody else that it's allowed us to not really focus on the fact that their pitching staff has had like a 470 ERA over the last two months, which seems like a problem. I don't know. 
Is this the deepest lineup you've seen in your life? I think we touched on this a bit recently. In my mind, previous to this, I thought of the 1995 then Cleveland Indians, but even they had like a couple of like dead spots in the lineup, you know, where like I think Sandy Alomar was catching and he had like an 80 OPS plus and Omar Vizquel was like all glove with like an 85 OPS plus. And this team doesn't have anyone like that. I mean, I think the most impressive thing, you you mentioned them, they're probably going to break the home run record. They already set the National League team home run record. And the... Overall record is what, 309 by the 2019 Twins? And like, we all remember. I don't remember the number, but that is that is the team. The yeah, Bombas and like, we yeah. remember in 2019, like, everyone was hitting lots of home runs, right? Like, if there was ever a year for someone to hit, the, like, the ball was flying. And the fact that this year, the Braves are probably going to beat that record says a lot about the quality of this Braves lineup. And it will be very interesting to see when they do get to the postseason, because you mentioned their bullpen, Rysel Iglesias has blown a couple of saves this week. He looks pretty shaky. As good as they are, they don't feel necessarily unbeatable for like very, I don't want to say obvious reasons, but like there's clear like areas of concern, I should say. Yeah, I would agree with that. I did want to focus on Acuna for a second, because like every discussion about Acuna right now is generally about the MVP and all the home runs and all the stolen bases and questions about how his defense doesn't actually rate that well. And that's all super important. But it's like every time you think about Acuna, you think about these big, loud things, the homers, the bat flipping, the stolen bases, the great throws from right field. And I almost think we're overlooking this incredible thing that he's doing, which is on a bit of a smaller scale. He's cut a strikeout rate in half. Last year, he struck out 24% of the time. This year, he has struck out just under 12% of the time. So with uh, some help from our friend and colleague, Jason Bernard, we went back and we looked at every player in history who had at least 400 plate appearances in back-to-back seasons, right? This is the second largest strikeout rate drop ever. The only guy who's done more was back in 1968 and 69, Orioles shortstop Mark Belanger, who dropped from 21% to 8%. Now, a couple of things here. First of all, it's a bit of a flawed metric because like, if you're Tony Gwynn, there's only so much you can drop. <laughs> you can't go into negative strikeouts. That's fine. Um, and also, you know, you might remember what happened in 1968. Well, there were four expansion teams the next year, and they changed the strike zone, and they changed the height of the mound. Like, it was literally the year of the pitcher. They made rule changes to try to change, you know, the offense. And if that doesn't sound like Ronald Acuna stealing a lot of bases, well, it sounds like that to me. The whole point here is that I've seen guys increase their, improve their strikeout rate, and it usually comes at the expense of power. You know, you make more contact, you don't hit the ball as hard. I think it's safe to say that has not been the case here. He has improved his power, and cut his strikeout rate by half. I don't think I have ever seen anything like yeah, this. Yeah, as our, our colleague Andrew Simon pointed out, I'll give him a tip of the cap here. You know, big part of that is he seems to be just like getting to getting the ball in play sooner, right? Last year, 56% of his plate appearances ended with two strikes. This year, it's just 45% of plate appearances ending with two strikes. I don't know if that's just being more aggressive or some combination of approach, but it's certainly not hurting him. The fact that he's trying to get swing and get the ball in play early in the count, he's having the best season of his career. And, you know, will probably, I think he'll win the MVP. It's not decided yet, but like, as you said, everyone is focusing on the other things, which is understandable considering how he's impressive he has been in terms of stealing bases and hitting home runs and just being all in all a very fun, entertaining player to watch. But in some ways, like it's this like kind of subtle thing that you'd think might get more attention just because like people generally don't like strikeouts from hitters and like grown at hitters who strike out a lot, like, you know, the three true outcomes guys. Um, and now he's really transformed himself. This is like, you know, he's striking out the same rate as like Jeff McNeil, who's like known as this like guy who never strikes out and just like punch and Judy guy who like slaps the ball all over the field. Like Ronald Acuna is, you know, might go 44 or 40, 70 as it were. So it's, it's pretty remarkable. 
That's a great point. I'm going to use this forever. The, ne- the next time someone complains about uh, strikeouts, I'm going to be like, did you even notice that Ronald Acuna cut his strikeout rate in half? Like, did anybody pay attention to this? No, nobody cares. I mean, I shouldn't say nobody cares. It's cool. But it's certainly not the most interesting thing about him. The second, third, fourth, fifth. It's barely even in like the 10 most interesting things about his season. I think it's cool. I'm glad we got to highlight it. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back on the Ballpark Dimension podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petrello and Matt Myers. Each week, we like to move into our three batter minimum, where we pick three interesting topics to get to. The first topic this week, Trey Turner and the pursuit of stolen base perfection. We talk so much about Acuna and how he's stealing all of these bases, and he is, but he also leads the sport in getting caught stealing. Meanwhile, Trey Turner is 27 for 27. He is a perfect 27 for 27. Only five players have ever had a season where they've had at least 20 steals and 100% success rate. And if you want to remember some guys, you're about to. Chase Utley was a great find, but Alcides Escobar, Quinton Berry, Kevin McReynolds, and shockingly late career Paul Molitor. Didn't see that one coming. The record for most consecutive successful steals, and he has 31 going back to last year, is 50 by Vince Coleman back in 1989. And 90. And if you think about the shape of Trey Turner's season, what do you think about? Signed a big contract, was a monster in the WBC, struggled horribly with the Phillies for like four months, got a standing ovation, and through the power of love, has turned himself back into a monster. And yet, he never got caught stealing, which like, you think about his status as this fastest guy or close to it in the sport every single year, and you would think, oh yeah, that's great. But man, 100%. Not even some weird like pickoff caught stealing that sort of happens and goes against your mark. 100%. I'm more interested in this than I am in Acuna getting to like 75. That's how cool I think. What if he, what if he just decides not to run anymore? Are you still going to be interested? I, I want to at least see him like, you know, get to 30, right? Because, you know, the record for, as you said, there's only been five players who've done it, gotten at least 20 steals without getting caught. But Chase Utley holds the quote unquote record with 23. Right. So I think it's like kind of cool if he can just like build this up and end up with, you know, he's probably not going to get to 35 considering he's obviously very picky about when he steals. That's part of why he's really good at it. And then, you know, there is the rule change that helps stealing bases, especially for good base stealers is a little bit easier this year, but it's still impressive and it's still cool. It is, as you alluded to, it's nice that this didn't, his struggles earlier in the year didn't like carry over into the base paths that like it didn't affect the fact that he was still this amazing base stealer. Yeah, I think he's got a different problem here. What I think you were getting at was like, would he stop stealing to preserve this record, right? And I I think he's got a different problem. He's killing the ball too much. If you keep hitting home runs, you cannot steal bases because you're never on first base. And it feels like every time I look up, he's got seven home runs this month. It's September 14th. You know, he had nine home runs last month, and that was mostly in the second half of the month. You can't steal first base, second base, after you've already circled all four bases i'm with you he has stolen do you know he only stole two bases in august that was it because he's that that's what happened he was killing the ball he stole 11 bases in june when he wasn't doing anything so i feel like there's a bit of an inverse correlation here between his batting success and his stealing success so if you want him to steal more bases you need to root against him as a person 
Are you are you comfortable with that? I'm, I'm not sure. But you, you mentioned the, the, the shape of his season. And I think this is a really interesting point because he was terrible for like the first three months of the year. But he's been so hot. And I don't think a lot of people have noticed this. But like his overall season line, he's basically gotten back to where he was last year. Right? Last year he hit 298, 343, 466 with 21 homers. He was 27 for 30 in stolen bases, which was good for a 124 OPS+. plus. This year, he's hitting 270, 321, 472. So he's actually slugging higher. He's got 26 homers, more home runs, and he's 27 for 27 in stolen bases, a 114 OPS+. And his expected weight on base is basically identical. Essentially, his batting average balls in play went down 25 points, so he's basically missing, like, a dozen singles. And, like, that's basically the difference between this year and last year. But, like, if you followed for the first few months of the season, you'd be like, Trey Turner, worst free agent signing of all time. It just goes to show how long baseball seasons are. And it's funny to think, like, imagine he had started like this and then slumped in the second half. People probably wouldn't really be talking about it because it'd be like he'd have this overall line and you look at it and you'd be like, oh, like, I guess, yeah, he's a little down this year compared to last year. But, like, it's not so bad. It's really funny how, like, the narratives can change based on, like, just entirely based on how you start your your season or your career with a new team. What is the best Philly fan heart moment? Is it Trey Turner's season turning around because they gave him a standing ovation? Or is it Bryce Harper saying he hit home run for Chuck in Mount Airy because he heard him on the local sports radio station? Which is the better connection? Uh, I'm not sure. I, my still favorite was from last year when Alec Baum was caught on camera being like, I hate this place. And then the fans like rallied around <laughs> that. And then he became like a fan favorite again. The Phillies relationship with their fans has become very, it's, it is, there is something very endearing about it, I will say. Uh, city of brotherly love is, uh, is how I remember it. All right, our next topic. The Milwaukee Brewers, uh, their rotation, this has always been their strength, right? Pitching. And they're getting red hot at the right time. They are currently four games up over the Cubs in the Central. Although I would point out the season does end with three against the Cubs in Milwaukee, which should be pretty fun. Over the last 30 days, the Brewers have the best pitching staff in baseball. 307 ERA is not only number one, but it's pretty heavily above the 335 of Tampa Bay at number two. And if you look at the guys there, right? Corbin Burns. Just no hit the Yankees through eight, and he's allowed two earned runs or fewer in 10 of his last 13. Brandon Woodruff missed months with a shoulder injury. He has a 2.22 ERA in seven starts since. And Freddie Peralta has the fourth best fielding independent pitching in the second half among starters, only behind Cole Reagans, Tarek Skubal, and Tyler Glasnow. You think about the way the playoffs work. You don't need a five-man rotation. You barely ever need a fourth starter. Is there a team, or a potential playoff team, with a top three starting pitchers that you like more than these guys. I'm going to tell you this. It's not the Dodgers. You can't name three Dodgers starting pitchers. I think the Braves are kind of set up for a run here. And the Brewers. Uh, the Brewers. Yeah. Let's go with that. Milwaukee starts with the B. The Braves. Um, Brewers. I mean, I met the Brewers. you know, people say, you know, every year it's like, oh, starting pitching wins in the postseason. It isn't always true. But obviously you want to go into October with reliable, not just reliable starters, starters you feel like can turn over a good team's lineup multiple times. And they're like – one of the maybe the only team that has three guys that I'm confident can do that. You know, in, in past years, I might have said the Braves, but like the Braves this year after Freed and Strider, I'm not so sure. Like it's they're they are well set up to be like pretty, you know, like they're sneaky. This is what the Brewers have done, right? They're kind of like been sneaky good every year. You look at their roster and you're like, ah, I'm not that impressed. And then like as the season goes on, it's like, wow, they're pretty deep. They've got this amazing like one or two relievers at the back of the bullpen. Oh, that starting pitching is actually really good. Woodruff, I've always been a big Woodruff guy. It's really nice to see him like 
really put it together for a stretch. And like, I'm hoping he can maintain this into the playoffs. You asked me this yesterday as we were like preparing for this episode of like, who would you take? Do you, who would you, would you take them over the Dodgers in a postseason series right now? And it's an interesting question. I still think I'd take the Dodgers, but like, as you said, I, I can't really name a Dodger starting pitcher right now. So it's hard to feel in that prediction. Yeah, the only thing that's changed for me, and I didn't realize this until I looked it up this morning. Do you know how many days it's been since Kristen Yelich started a game for Milwaukee? How many? Like a week. He hasn't started since September 8th, and he's not starting again today. He's got a sore back. That's like a whole week, and that is not an offense that, A, can withstand the loss of Christian Yelich, and B, everybody seems to think that his down years were partially because of his sore back. So if he is not the guy you've had, I mean, I like that they've got a very good defense. They're number one and outs above average. But if I had full strength Christian Yelich and that rotation, I think I'd pick him over the Dodgers. Like That's how, that's how much I like the starters here. Without Yelich, we're going to check back later on that one. Our final topic, Max Scherzer is now done for the season. Uh, eight games started with Texas, 45 innings, a 320 ERA. So pretty good pickup. Uh, yeah, very similar injury to Justin Verlander, right? A low-grade strain of his right terrorist major muscle. And I, I was thinking about this. I know he wasn't on the All-Star team for Texas because he got traded afterwards. They had six All-Stars, and five of them got hurt in the second half. Everybody but Marcus Simeon. Now some of them are back. And now Scherzer's done. And I'm going to give you a hot take here, and I want to see if you disagree with me. This means nothing for them in terms of getting to the playoffs. And it means everything for them in terms of succeeding once they're in the playoffs, right? There's only like, how many games was he going to pitch? One or two more? There's just not that much one player can do over the 10 innings he was going to throw. Now in the playoffs, when he's not starting and all of a sudden you have, I don't know, Dane Dunning starting, that's that's a problem. I don't think this matters that much for the next two weeks. It matters something, right? I mean, it's like you think he's better than the alternatives it, it has some impact the impact might be overstated by some um but it definitely you know the thing about you know what you know scherzer i think has he's the thing about scherzer is he still can be great on any given day he can still give up a lot of homers on any given day which is like been his big bugaboo but he generally pitches deep into games for what we consider deep into games in this day and age like he generally pitches like six sometimes seven innings not really but like even six this day and age consistently, it's pretty valuable. And when you consider their bullpen and that, like, I don't have confidence that Dane Dunning is going to give you six innings, I actually think that those, like, extra innings really matter in the regular season where in the postseason you can actually try and, like, stack your pitchers to, like, minimize the amount of times your bad relievers have to pitch. It's a little harder to do that when you're playing every day. So I think it has some impact, um, but the impact might be overstated depending on depending on who you're – who you're talking to. I will say I have to give the Rangers a ton of credit. They have their fourth game against the Blue Jays tonight, but they've gone into Toronto and beaten them three straight games fairly easily and are now in very good position because they hold the tiebreaker over the Blue Jays, which is, you know, could end up being pretty significant. They haven't just beaten the Blue Jays. They have like embarrassed the Blue Jays. Like they they walked into Toronto and the series hasn't even been competitive, really. And so now, and they have one more game against them. Uh, as you said, one game out behind Houston, uh, half a game up on Seattle. I've gone back and forth on this team so many times. We almost counted them out for dead a week ago. And now it's like, oh yeah, I think they're going to make the playoffs because now I don't trust Toronto at all. I, I don't know what to make of them. I don't trust them in the playoffs. And here's why. Through, the lineup is great, right? Your postseason rotation is Montgomery, who's been pretty good. Uh, Ivaldi, who has a history of being good, but has missed a bunch of time with an arm injury and is only just working his way back. John Gray, Dane Dunning. And if you look at the bullpen over the last 30 days, the worst in the American League 
uh, only behind Colorado in the, in the entire majors. I don't trust the bullpen in any way at all. I don't trust the rotation. Sure, it would be nice to have DeGrom and Scherzer together on a team. Like, imagine what that would look like. That would be cool. I, I think they're going to get in now, but I don't trust them to go very far. Um, although I recall a team having DeGrom and Scherzer in their playoff rotation last year and not getting out of the wild card round. Yeah. So, you know. Weird, weird stuff happens. That's, I mean, we're now at the time of year where like you could catch anything with like, but it's the playoffs. Weird stuff happens. Remember two years ago, the Braves bullpen looked terrible and the Braves bullpen carried them to a World Series. So weird stuff happens, but I'm with you. Like it's hard to feel. And I'm sure like if you could give truth serum to the Rangers coaching staff in front office, I don't think they feel that great about their bullpen and really feel like they trust them going into the postseason, but they deserve a lot of credit, assuming they get there. They deserve a lot of credit for what they've done in Toronto. It's actually the exact, I mean, it's the inverse of what happened when they hosted the Astros the weekend before last, when the Astros went into Texas and just like wiped the floor with them. And then here they are, they go into Toronto, a big series, and they're like, wipe the floor with Toronto. So you can't predict baseball, as they say. All right. Well, we'll talk in a week again, and I'm sure our opinions will have been completely flipped over. Like we've done a pretty bad job of saying, "Oh, this team's definitely in, and this team's definitely out." As far as the wild card goes, everything has been topsy turvy for like four months. We've also been saying like it's going to come down to those, those the Rangers' last ten games, and they've got what seven against the is it seven against the Mariners and um, three against the Astros. It's a question is whether or not the Blue Jays are still relevant at that point, or if, it, if they're just fighting for playoff positioning based on the way the Blue Jays have been playing. All right, we'll take a quick break, and we'll come back, and Matt and I will each have a pair of guys you should know a little bit more about. Back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petrillo and Matt Myers. Each week, we like to end our show by highlighting some under-the-radar guys you should know a little bit more about. And I feel like my guy is now the opposite of under the radar because I just wrote an article for the site that said he's off to the greatest start in the history of the major leagues, which seems like the opposite of under the radar. I am, of course, talking about the man, the myth, the mustache, Davis Schneider, New Jersey's own Davis Schneider, the best player to ever come out of New Jersey, as long as you ignore Mike Trout and a whole bunch of other players. He is hitting 353, 481 on base. He's slugging over 770. He has an OPS of 1,258 or 1,258, if that's how you prefer to say it. I wrote about him yesterday. He just completed his 26th game, but through 25 games, he had the highest OPS of all time in his first 25 games. And this is a list that includes Albert Pujols, William McCovey, Reese Hoskins, and also Mandy Brooks of the 1925 Cubs, who will probably be my guy you should know more about next week, because we all want to know about Mandy Brooks. David Schneider was a 28th rounder in 2017 out of high school. By his own admission, he was an afterthought. He was just a depth guy in the Blue Jays system. He was there for other guys to play against. He did not get more than 216 plate appearances in a single minor league season in 2017 or 18 or 19, obviously not in 20, or 21, or 22. Wasn't even picked in the Rule 5 draft last winter. This is how under the radar he was. You may remember him uh, at first. He had a home run in Fenway in his first game. That was super cool. Maybe you remember him for being the guy who got his glove out of a lost and found at the place he coaches in the offseason, only to find out later it was former Phillies legend John Vukovic's. That's like the weird stuff you knew him for. Now you know him for being the best hitter on the Blue Jays. Obviously, I do not expect this to persist, but what he's doing is pretty cool. He's got the lowest chase rate in baseball. That's meaningful real fast. He's got the lowest ground ball rate ever, pretty much. I don't think that's going to last, but that kind of tells you what he's doing. Never chase, hit the ball in the air. Doesn't even hit the ball that hard. That's what he's doing. I don't think he's going to be the best player ever for that much longer, but given the skills we've seen, he 
could be a pretty good Blue Jay for years to come. And I think that's cool for a guy we only knew about for having a cool mustache like a month ago. Yeah, I mean, he, I mean, considering what we just said about the Blue Jays, it's nice. This has been a very good story for the Blue Jays this season. His numbers at AAA this year were like legit. And those, I mean, when you perform like he did at AAA, 275, 416, 553, with almost as many walks as strikeouts, like you do that, it usually translates pretty well to some level of major league success. You know, you noted he may not be like the best player to come out of Jersey other than Mike Trout, but like it is pretty funny to think in the year that Anthony Volpe debuted that he will be the best rookie from New Jersey. <laughs> like, couldn't, 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 Can couldn't, I tell you, I got one other thing before you go to your guy. Uh, I wrote this article the other day and uh, yesterday I got a nice note from David Schneider's dad, which I thought was amazing saying, hey, great article. We're so proud of him. And I'm like, that must be the coolest thing in the world. His dad must be like floating on cloud nine, reading every word that's written about his son. And uh, I just think that's super. I cool. just like the idea of, of like, you know, of like David Schneider's dad having like Google alerts for his son and just like emailing, seeing every article that comes up and just like finding the, finding the writer and, and sending them an email. Um, there's something very, very sweet and very endearing about that. I love it. Good major league hitter is a pretty, uh, it's not a bad line on your resume. And I think there's the, the path to a consistent career is like a good major league hitter is there. My guy is someone who isn't exactly under the radar, but I think was written off by, and I say he's not under the radar because literally in 2022, I he was my pick for National League Rookie of the Year, and that really didn't pan out. Um, but he be, kind of started floating under the radar because he opened the season as on a fairly like written off player on one of baseball's most anonymous teams. And he's putting together a really nice season, especially a really good second half. And I'm talking about Washington Nationals shortstop C.J. Abrams. Prior to this season, he was probably like most famous for being a key piece in the Juan Soto trade. You could argue he was the key piece. Maybe, you know, that's up to debate. But like that was a big part of his resume. He was the sixth overall pick in the 2019 draft, which, you know, we've talked recently about some recent drafts that did not look so good. That draft is looking like a really good draft. Adley Rushman, number one, Bobby Wood Jr., number two. C.J. Abrams was number six. There's a few other good names in there. And Abrams, he actually started the year pretty slowly for the Nationals. Um, first half, he had 245, 292, 397 with seven home runs and 302 plate appearances. And I have to say, you look at Abrams and sometimes it's hard, especially like early, you know, like especially even last year, you look at him and it's like, how is this guy ever going to hit for power? He's pretty slight, right? He's not a big guy. Speed was always going to be his game, but like he needs some power. Well, he's definitely unlocked some power in the second half. And really, his speed is really a big part of his game. In the second half, he's hitting 258, 320, 464 with 11 homers in 209 plate appearances. So, like, he's really getting to his power. Perhaps most impressive, since the All-Star game, in 53 games, he is 27 for 28 in stolen bases. 41 for 44 over the course of the season. It's cool that he is proceeding, uh, succeeding, right? And I don't want to put too much pressure on him or anybody else in that trade, but someone had to. If you traded Juan Soto and you didn't get back at least one high-quality major leaguer, that's the worst trade in big league history. Because Juan Soto, I know the Padres have been a mess. He is elite. Like This trade had to work out for the Nationals. And um, the Nationals, I did. 
to their credit, like they've played better in the second half. I know it's been kind of a, a weird last couple weeks there, you know, with the Strasburg thing. And I guess they resigned Mike Rizzo. So that's great. But it is nice to see some of these guys succeeding. Like the, the future looks brighter there. So that's <laughs> highest stolen pace percentage all time with at least 40 steals. Um, first on the list is Max Carey from 1922. That basically shouldn't count. He had 51 steals that year and was caught twice. Then we've got Ichiro, Jimmy Rollins, Carlos Beltran. Next on the list, C.J. Abrams. That's a pretty cool list. Ichiro, Jimmy Rollins, Carlos Beltran, then C.J. Abrams. That's what I'm talking about. What's also interesting is if you look at Fangraft's um, weighted stolen base metric, he actually ranks third in baseball um, behind Astoria Ruiz and Corbin Carroll. That's right. He ranks ahead of Ronald Acuna Jr., despite the fact Ronald Acuna Jr. has, what, stolen like 70 bases, and that's because he's also leads the— Stealings hurt. They hurt. They count. You can't ignore them. It's been a really encouraging year for C.J. Abrams. Like he now looks like a guy, like a you know the player we thought he was going to be. You know, a guy who can steal bases at this level and hit twenty homers. Like that's a very exciting, dynamic, dangerous offensive player. The defense, he's still like if you look at advanced metrics, he's still a little bit below average. But he's young enough that you think that you could you can find see some improvement there. And I'm ex- I'm I'm pleased that my. To talk about a post-type sleeper, my 2022 Rookie of the Year pick is breaking out in 2023. Uh, This is a good one. Fun fact, uh, you would think that a man named CJ would be like, you know, Christopher James or something like that. His actual name is Paul. His name is Paul. Paul Christopher Abrams Jr., named after his father, also Paul Christopher Abrams. And CJ, he says it's for little Chris. I'm not entirely sure how that works. I don't know how you get CJ. Chris Jr., I suppose, is maybe what they're going with. But I find CJ Abrams to be a much cooler name than Paul Abrams. So I I approve of this. I think it's extremely cool. Um, Good one. I like that. I like talking about young guys who are succeeding. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.